Hi, and welcome to the Birth Visionary Podcast, where we talk tools, resources, and taking action with birth workers and maternal health advocates committed to social justice and systemic change. We help you get clear about your vision and values so you can lead with authenticity and intention in your unique work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Birth Visionary Podcast. I'm Jennifer Dunatov, and I'm thrilled today to have Shamika Tumlin with us. She is an advocate, educator, and speaker with a Master of Science in Public Health, a Master's in Marriage and Family Therapy, and over five years' experience in the field of behavioral health. Shamika is currently a public health professional in the field of maternal child health, a temp-licensed postgraduate under supervision at the moment, marriage and family therapist, national show your love ambassador and chair member, a member of the Black Christian Influencers and Forbes the Culture, and Mama Glow full spectrum, spectrum doula trainee with Birth Manifesta. Shamika attended Georgia Southern University for undergrad and received a Bachelor's of Science in Biology with minors in Chemistry and Psychology. Seeking to be a change maker and advocate for individuals in the field, she pursued her Master's of Science in Public Health at Mahari Medical College and graduated in 2016. During this time, she served as a crisis counselor at one of Tennessee's largest domestic violence shelters. While serving in this role, her desire to assist families and communities in changing generational narratives grew. She graduated from Terveka Nazarene University in 2019 with her master's in marriage and family therapy and began her journey to becoming a licensed marriage and family therapist. Welcome to the podcast, Shamika. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you. It is definitely a joy to be here with you. And I know this is going to be an amazing conversation because we already had an amazing conversation and I've told so many people about that conversation because we we um, planned a little meet and greet that I thought was going to be this 10 minute you know get to know you conversation and we ended up talking for over an hour and yes throughout that conversation I just kept thinking I wish we were recording now because this is um, what you were getting into is just some incredible stuff. And so I know that we're going to be doing that again today. And I, yes. I'm so glad to be with you. So, oh my goodness. So you're, you know, reading through your bio, I am so impressed with your background and the areas that you are focusing on in your, mater- your um, mental health work. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to hear a bit about your story around what brought you to this work, because you are so clearly very passionate about what you do and so accomplished in what you do. And um, I would just love to hear more about your story and what brought you to what you're doing today. Okay. So, I mean, to make it as brief as possible, uh, it started, honestly, high school was a part of health or well, health occupational students of America. So HOSA um, is what they call it in short um, was a state officer. And literally I'll never forget our theme or our philanthropy at the time was autism, autism speaks. Now listen, and it set the course for everything that is happening now. Um, at the time I, I thought I wanted to be a behavioral analysis and work with families um, on the autism spectrum. I was a part of a support group there that was being made. As a student, I would assist with things from looking after the children during meetings or being a part of those meetings and learning about fundraising, event holding, all those great things, uh, which 
is why my major and minors were what they were in college, simply from trying to understand like biology, what is the microbes in the gut do for behavior and psychology and uh, sociology, especially like, what does it look like to interact with people on different levels, not just communication for someone who can't speak between between someone who can't speak and with someone who does, but also how do we even form those connections and what does attachment look like among parents and families who have children with different abilities? So fast forward (laughs) throughout that process and how we got to a master of science in public health was understanding the implications and how we work with communities and understanding what prevention and tertiary care and all these other things look like and understanding the basis of that is data. So we have to look at the data to understand what are the tools and resources that communities are getting and why some communities get these tools and resources and others don't. So my brain was always like on this, uh, I guess we say like the macro level of like, how do we get here? Like, why? Um, And understanding why I really enjoy working with communities one-on-one, the policy changes and legislations that, that affect those communities happen on a whole nother level. And oftentimes with people who don't even have direct access to the community itself, which then brought me back to counseling on the aspect of a lot of the things that are happening with these families. Okay. Policy and legislation has occurred, but then families need help. And not necessarily from the perspective of families can't do it all by themselves, but from the perspective of, I now have a diagnosis or we're now, you know, working and determining who's going to be at home or who's going to split their time between school, our other children, our children who, you know, needs more attention and understanding a lot of that too is these resources require families to take time out of work or to take time away from others within the household to spend specific time often during the daytime with school systems, uh, you know, health occupation systems And what does that look like? Because I'm asking you to spend resources that you're taking time away from making to be here. So looking at what does it look like if someone were to offer hours after hours during the weekends um, and just be more accessible to families. Then the full 360 there and landing me in maternal mental health is understanding the journeys that so many families go on to create a family what it means when families find out that there are different diagnoses given to their own unborn children. Sometimes after children are born and then certain things are happening in development and they're having to go back and approach questions. And not only is it a, oh my goodness, like we worked so hard, literally worked to build a family because of issues that may have occurred. And now I have so many emotions about the family that I do have. So helping to understand that we can create changes in children, yes, but if we don't create changes within the parents, the parents are the one raising the children. So what environment are we really creating? So taking that and applying it to my work and saying, okay, I can work with the the, the head of the households or the people who keep in the household together. So our parents, our caregivers, and also know I have colleagues in a community that works with the children and I'm also able to work with everyone together and then pulling that back in and saying also while working hands-on, I still can use my platform to impact policy and legislation 
and do it while having actual foot in the community. So I'm not just speaking from a standpoint of data and numbers that a lot of people look at. I'm like, I just tell me the story. So I actually have the story. I'm a part of the narrative and can bring that to the policy and legislation changes that are needed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And ooh, two things are really striking me right now. Number one, when you talk about the work that's needed for the parents, for the caregivers, that is something that after becoming a mother for the first time that I started learning the hard way, right? Mm-hmm. That it's... Um, Ultimately, it comes from, it's that generational piece where I've got to work on the stuff that I have in order for my kids to thrive, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something that really stood out in your, um, when I was reading your bio. So this idea of, um, you know, wanting to assist families and communities in changing the generational narratives. And I feel that coming through so strongly with what you just said in your individual one-on-one work, but then also wanting to keep one foot in the legislative issues as well. Yes. And in, in ultimately to serve your community. So how do you define your community? Is that geographical when I, with that question? So when I say community, I literally mean the villages that represent individuals that have created me. So I mean communities of color. I mean marginalized communities. I mean communities who are going through this narrative of this fight and this grit to get what they need. And they're producing successful individuals. They're producing changes. And oftentimes it goes unseen. So community to me is the understanding that we all are a part of bigger networks And we represent those networks on a daily basis in the work that we do. So when I say I'm creating change for my community, that's another reason for me to keep one foot in legislation. I may be a part of the narrative of the community that I'm a part of right now, which is in Nashville, Tennessee. But I also represent the community of Douglas, Georgia, which is where I was born, raised, grew up in my family, like my actual blood family is there. The community of Charleston County, where my mom's family is, you know, like the community of Albany, Georgia, where my dad's family is communities in Florida, Atlanta, because I have family members there, like pieces of me are everywhere. But then also the bigger community of being an African-American woman and being a part of that community, being a woman and being a part of that community, being black and being part of that community. So community to me is connected to identity. So whenever I'm creating policy changes or I am working with someone one-on-one and creating change within that family, understanding that I'm creating generational changes within not only that family, but what it could look like for all families that look like us, because we never know where we're going to end up. I don't know where my seeds and offsprings are going to be. So when I say community, I literally mean the community that is reflective of me around the world. Mm. That is so beautifully said. I don't think I've had anyone ever answer that question in such an elegant way. And um, I literally have this visual of you moving, like I have a visual of a map and you moving from place to place and like leaving this, you know, magic wherever you've been. And then also collecting um, what is offered from those spaces and places and communities and yes. bringing that forward in your work. And I think that's such powerful imagery um, for the way that we think about our communities and how, you know, for those of us who are ultimately working in wanting to make an impact in changing an aspect of our community or providing more access or working for justice, um, changing systems, it's such a beautiful way to reflect on what community means. And I think, you know, we're in a time right now where 
there is so much conversation around the needs of individuals than yes and often pitted against you no know, versus the needs of the community what does that look like how do we grapple with that i always think about that because as an ethicist from a moral or ethical perspective um, but i think the more ways in which we can talk about community as being distinct from but both so integrated with who we are as individuals is so very important mm-hmm. and 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 in terms of our own health um you know, a more interest, integrated, holistic way of looking at identity, right? And that's that's really what I'm hearing from you. That, and I, I think too, what has helped me come to this. So when we're talking about how I got here, there, of course, were to keep it short, there were pieces that were that were left out. So part of that is in being introduced to maternal child health, also being introduced to the struggles of not only conception but the struggles that often go into not having adequate sex education, definitely not having adequate reproductive education. So this aspect of preconception health, and what does that mean? Why don't we use that more often? And the understanding that before we got to the point of building families or deciding whether or not we wanted to have children right now, we made that decision based off the knowledge and understanding we had with our sex education and reproductive education. And oftentimes it misses the whole window of what happens once you're ready to start the family. Because we really, there's so, and I'm, I'm from the South, so I, I'm not sure how it is on the West Coast, but there's a huge fear-based tactic that goes into teaching when you're in a, like, you know, your primary and secondary levels of school. And then we get into a system where we're working with individuals who are giving us stories that we didn't even know could exist because we weren't our eyes weren't open to that, but you were training me to work with these communities, but you, were, you weren't giving me their story. So there's so much that is not in a textbook, but you literally taught me or trained me to work specifically within a window that's no longer valid. Wow, that, that's powerful because ultimately what you're saying is if you don't understand the lived experience of the community, how much of an impact will and you, when I say you, I mean general you, but how much mm-hmm. impact will your work really have if you don't know the story of that particular community and the living? Exactly. Community? And then we we oftentimes end up with this um, almost like a seesaw, not not a merry-go-round, but a seesaw of the, we need this. And I know we need this because I lived it. And then the, also I'm healing from it. And I'm raising awareness, but who's the person that's already healed and giving back to the community? Mm-hmm. Or my personal opinion, if school gave more of a window in how we taught, we'd have more individuals who could create windows and doors in homes that they've never lived in. Therefore, give, being that outsider that's needed so you're not taking on secondary trauma and reliving your own trauma, but also able to help shine a flashlight where maybe there are no windows and doors yet in the home to help that person create them for themselves. I like analogies. I'm sorry. I love, no, I love the imagery. I'm the same way. I love analogies. I love imagery. And it's just, it, it's a powerful way for us to, to wrap our minds around um, you know, the need I keep coming back to, and this is a big part of my own research. So I geek out on this a little bit, but the, um, the work around intergenerational trauma and how essential that is 
you know, and it looks different for different communities. Absolutely. Um, but how essential that is, I think, universally across the board for people who are wanting to enter into a new life through, you know, having children and building a family, right? So, so I'm fascinated by your work around preconception. You've mentioned preconception yes. a few times, and I suspect that this is linked. But tell me how, because I think this is really a visionary piece of the work that you're doing and in the way that you've described it so far. And so tell me how you particularly particularly serve members of your communities, um, people you're working with in the pre, you know, around preconception counseling and preconception mental health awareness. All mm-hmm. above. So specifically, especially as a show you love ambassador, that's all about raising awareness for the need to be healthy um, earlier not only earlier on in life, but earlier on in your reproductive window. So for women that's, or young girls, it's once you start your period, of course. Um, For young boys, there's this window we know like late elementary, early middle school years that that window kind of starts to open. Um, And we could give an age, but the age range is different for everyone, especially we know for young girls because it's dependent on so many different factors. So the understanding that for this group and specifically, I'm not telling you about sex. I'm just telling you why recess may be important. I'm telling you why it's important to read and actually engage more in those activities that you love because your body is maturing and you're often seeking some type of guidance, nutrients, and other types of support that if not leaned into something positive could very well take you on a path to picking up negative life experiences and also attaining negative or not even negative, just having lifestyles that aren't going to be congruent to the outcome that you truly seek. Because we often get this experience or get told these stories of it's okay right now, but eventually you need to stop that, but you have time to play. Yes. And it's like, but but do we have time to play? Because everything you do in playtime is going to impact how you take a nap. <laughs> it's going to impact what, what type of snacks you want to eat. So if my playtime is n- also not in some way structured around what I want to do after playtime, it is going to impact how I transition out of playtime. So in terms of how I transition from this period where I am looking to not have a family into how do I want to have a family? Cause we have this notion of we have sex one time and bam, there's a baby. No, <laughs> it's not magical like that at all. No. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't, especially when you put, t- you know, put in things such as birth control and other things that we do over the years, even the types of foods you eat. But then also understanding your body and the different things. Like, are you talking to your, you know, OB or your gyno around certain pain that you're having, you know, during your period? Are you talking about the pain that you have even when you're not on your period? What does intercourse look like for you? And these are often things that can be almost like a sense of shame, especially if you're being told you're participating in activities that you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So you're keeping them a secret. So then when they don't have to be a secret and you're talking about them, you learn you have a history of things you should have that were warning signs that you could have talked about with someone to know what's happening next. Other ways of talking about preconception in my role as a preconception health strategist, that's what the legislation and looking at what are we doing outside of talking about contraception? 
So how are we giving women and men and all individuals, including binary individuals, like affirming care, gender affirming care? Families look different and they're going to continue to look different. But under what system are we operating? Because oftentimes we operate in traditional patriarchal systems that say, this is what our messaging is. This is who we're talking to. But then we wonder why we can't find solutions to cert- like certain problems. And I'll, just, I'll leave it like that, very vague. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because you're constantly pushing people out of the healthcare system, but you can't, you push them out of the primary care you give and the primary messaging you give, but you've done nothing for the tertiary effects and when people need to come and seek health care because your messaging may not have been given to them, but they still are part of your healthcare system and the people who still are going to need health care provided to them. Uh, just going to stop here for a second and ask, am I still answering your question? <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. And I am. No, I'm, I'm tracking you completely fine. And okay. so there. So, oh, a couple things. So what? So, wow. So the need for transparency along the continuum, and I, I'm hearing that, and I'm thinking, as you're talking, I'm thinking as a mom, like, what did I feed my kids yesterday? <laughs> no, because it's all connected, right? And so I think this is, what I think is really visionary about this approach is the you're, you're addressing these issues along a continuum that is much larger in scope than what we would typically think about preconception. I know people yeah. do preconception work and what they mean by preconception work is, you know, the three months before you want to start getting pregnant. Right. And mm-hmm. you're talking about this continuum of, you know, kids, like teaching yes. kids why aspects of their health are important because ultimately that's going to inform mm-hmm. their process of um, working to become parents. Um, yes. for example, and the transparency that's needed in the way we educate in order to reduce shame that is so often associated with these conversations. And, um, and that shame reduction, I'm thinking that that could be a whole other podcast or five around the role of shame and the lens through which we see, you know, our healthcare choices and, Mm -hmm. and ultimately the types of conversations we are open to having with our providers. So and it also kind of in, it's a window in understanding preconception too. And I think of it as pick. So pre and interconception, because there's also, I mean, and then postpartum goes into that yeah. because technically we go back into the same conversation just with different levels of care when we hit postpartum. Because you're back into the realm of, okay, healing your body, talking about what birth spacing looks like, but then also what are you, how are you healing your body if you know you want to have another baby? Mm -hmm. And then secondary infertility and all these other things get pushed into that conversation as well. But if we never had a foundation of what preconception looked like, how do we truly have a foundation for what postpartum interconception and that journey looks like? Mm. Oh my goodness. Yes. And so as you're talking, I'm thinking, in your opinion, what's one thing that birth workers could do better? And I, and birth workers is a pretty wide umbrella, right? We're talking about doulas, midwives, OBs, postpartum doulas. But the first thing that comes to mind, I know there are probably many, but what's one thing that you think Mm -hmm. birth workers in general could do better on the whole 
to support the type of interconnected, transparent, shame-reducing care that you're talking about and highlighting in your work? So I will speak from personal experience and why I became a birth worker. It was really important for me in choosing full spectrum, one, as a therapist, because it, for me, brings in the mental health piece, but also the aspect of it's not just about the birth. And in understanding that, we know when we're talking to families about what their birthing process is going to look like, who they want in the room, what does their support system look like? We know now that we, we also have to talk about mental health. We know now we also have to talk about what does a healthy support system look like? What do those relationships look like? So if I didn't focus on the birth, I focused on the person, that would still put me in the realm of talking about preconception and fertility and these other things, bringing in aspects such as mental health, talking to people about communities and relationships. So while, yes, I am a birth worker, I am talking with you about the foundations of, of birth. I'm talking to you about those things that are important, because if you have those skills before you get to the birthing room, then my job as an advocate and teaching you to have power in your voice, I've done that long before you got to this period where you're like, I'm about to have a baby. I need to make sure nothing goes wrong. We've been working on that before you made the conscious decision that you were going to have a baby and you were impacting or implementing those seeds in your own life so that when you made the decision to have a baby, it was made with all of those things already in mind. Mm -hmm. So we're going through a checklist, not necessarily educating you on things that you don't know or things you don't have because you are also moving along that continuum as we got here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm, And as you're talking, I'm just thinking access, 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 because Mm -hmm. that is So much hinges, and again, this looks different for different communities, but so much hinges on the ability for people to access the resources that will support what you just described. And yeah, go ahead. So that is one of the things, and it's it's not like a, um, I'm fighting against the system, but kind of. So access in the sense that We're fighting for access to contraception. We're fighting for access to abortions. We're fighting for access for autonomy over our bodies and within systems that will provide us that care ultimately for free or at reduced cost so that it's not, it's equitable. So everyone can have access to it. We also need that same access for actual fact-based education that will also help us understand the choices outside of the ones that we are fighting for and the ones that people just assume like you already have the freedom to have, which is the freedom to make a baby, the freedom to um, decide if you're going to, for instance, have a therapist. Although we we all know, at, like you may decide, but it's a whole other thing to go find a therapist, just like it's a whole other thing to go make a baby. So that's what I mean by fact-based education. Yeah, you have the freedom to make those decisions where you don't have the freedom to make decisions of other other things and concerns to your body or your autonomy. But we need to th- treat all life decisions like like we treat those and say that we should have pieces of educate within our education system, within our health departments, services that are offered for free outside of 
you know, the ones that we, we already have that are in conjunction with no matter what life choice or what life path you make, which goes back to that piece of, like I said, gender affirming care. If we provided care for everyone, it would automatically change the way we start to think about what services we provide because we will start providing services that are truly reflective of wanting to have a high quality of health for everyone that lives within a community or within our county, within our city. And not just we say it, but the care that we're providing truly does point to we have already chosen who is deserving of that higher quality of care. Yes. And I see, um, you know, I'm working in clinical care right now. That's part of my role, part of what I do. And I see the bias and the outright Mm -hmm. discrimination, racism that goes without saying, but especially with, you know, the trans community, for example, quite frankly, I see provider bias actively play out toward members of that community frequently. Yes. And there is, and they, and I can say unequivocally that in instances that I've witnessed firsthand, I know that they are not receiving the level of care that a cisgender heterosexual, you know, white man, for example, would be receiving. And in the cases that I've observed, there's a whole lot of lack of education. Um, a lot of shame I see bubbling up on the parts of providers that can't even enter into a conversation about it because Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I don't, I can't speak for what they're feeling or thinking, but I, I can witness aspects of that coming forward. And again, this looks different for different communities, but I live in Southern California, which I'm guessing is very different culturally than Nashville, Tennessee and other parts of the South. Yes. And I, and one might assume that, oh, if you're in the Los Angeles area, people are going to be automatically very open-minded and welcoming to these folks and, and um, different gender expressions, et cetera. That's not always the case. That's not what I've observed. And so I think you're absolutely right that until we can re, you know, really achieve this level of equity and it keeps coming back to, um, you know, for me, personal formation of providers. Yes. You know, in getting honest with themselves and, right? And um, and ultimately, here's the other thing, removing themselves from the care of a patient or client when they know that their own values are not consistent with being able to provide that person with the care that they deserve. We can't do an encore, but I'm doing a, I'm doing a standing <laughs> ovation. So to say, I'm going to piggyback on my answer for birth workers. Please do. I stick by my first answer. I just, I want to add this as a, like a, a bonus. Sure. Please do. Having an interdisciplinary team for the client you are working with. Your network needs to not only include other birth workers, but it needs to include people outside of that spectrum. Who are the mental health clinicians? Who are the chiropractors? Who are the people who do other types of wellness offerings? Who are your people who do PT and pelvic therapy? You're not a doctor's office. No, 
but the system was created for individuals we know that do not look like me. <laughs> so in creating change, how do you use the very system, but flip it so that it works for not only you, but the clients you are serving? Because you and I talked about this in our last conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand the means of gatekeeping, but I'm not of the idea that I'm holding a door open for you in this practice that you wouldn't otherwise have access to, especially when a lot of times we say that, but it's like, if the practice wasn't even built for this person, it doesn't matter that you're holding the door open for them. Yes, they may be getting great service for you, but the organization or the entity that you represent is still not giving them the best representation when it comes to your client. So therefore, yes, you are serving as a door, but you're serving for a door and a wall that still has no windows and anything else that can provide an actual safety in terms of foundation or home for this person. So essentially what you're doing is putting a Band-Aid on something that may need stitches or maybe even need to be amputated. So it's, it's not equitable, it's not justice, and it's overall not providing any type of quality of care. You're just, in a way, you're kind of making the situation worse. So if we can create an interdisciplinary, excuse me, team and have it be of individuals or reflective of organizations who we know actually represent the client or were built for the client, not only are we opening their eyes and giving them access to the communities that they need access to, but we're also bringing awareness and knowledge of those entities because that client is going to tell other people about it and therefore bring them not only if we were to talk business economics and we know that our we're, we're built off the money, people of currency. So not only are you building their business, but ultimately you are building that community because you're letting them know what resources are available for them. Yes. I just got the full body chills when you said that, because, you know, to um, to give the people listening some context, when you and I were talking offline in a prior conversation, I made a comment like, yeah, I just know so many, I know of so many birth workers who are only serving people that look like them. I said something to that effect. And I just wish that they would recognize this and make their services available to a broader spectrum of people. And as the words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, no, what are you saying? And you checked me on it. And I was like, thank you. And like, this is clearly an example of needing to do lifelong work, right? Because no matter how many conversations I have, I still like defaulted to this, but they should be doing this, right? No, because ultimately, like with what you were just saying, that could be a harmful space for a person, even if they are opening that door. We could be causing harm to an underrepresented um person from a community that is not normally served by that resource or that person mm -hmm. um, and basically leading them into the lion's den, right? Like yes. here, we're so equitable. So we're so amazing. We're so justice focused. I'm flinging my doors open, even though you are not, I had no original intention of serving you mm -hmm. come in and this is going to make me look great. Yes. You know, right. But I'm not, I'm not serving this person in the way that they deserve to be served and providing them the level of care that they deserve to receive. So yes. um, I really appreciated. I'm glad that you brought that back up. I'm glad we circled back to that because I think it's a really important thing for folks to reflect on. Um, you know, if you're a birth worker listening and you're thinking about ways that you want to expand or modify your practice, what's the work that you need to be doing mm -hmm. on yourself first 
and getting real about what your intentions are prior to thinking about revamping or expanding or making your services look different or the, the communities you're served ultimately um, are expanding to communities in a different way than you might have already been doing. So, um, so I appreciated that uh, you mentioning that so much. And so it's like reimagining the existing system, um, doing that. And then also how can we use the existing system to create the change that we want to see? Um, I hear that, that you're saying that as well. This is an ongoing conversation I have with folks. Can you actually, and in my last solo podcast I did, the episode before yours will air, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I, I grapple with that question all the time because I chose to come back into a healthcare system environment knowing that I'm now going to be part of the system again. And can we ultimate, can we really create change as part of the system or does it in the end really just change us to you know, assimilate us back into what we're trying to change. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm going off on a tangent, but uh, no, no. I'm thinking about all those things. So, oh my gosh. So I'm going to pivot a little bit unless you, unless you had something you wanted to follow up there. Okay. So tell me a lot of what I'd like people to reflect on in their own work. And I do this myself. And in part of the intention behind this podcast is getting folks to really think about what their own values are and how they want to, you know, walk the walk in the work that they do. So I'm wondering for you, what are some of your core values that you bring to your work? And I think we know the answer to how those probably inform your work going forward, but I'd love to hear you talk a bit about your values and how, how that impacts the way you engage your work and engage with the communities you serve. I'm smiling because I'm just like, I, life has been asking me that question a lot this week. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, and my answer is unwavering, which just, it makes me smile there too. And knowing that I am walking my life's purpose um, and passion and everything else is truly just a bonus in the sense that my values that guide this work that I'm consistently adding to um, first foremost, God. My religion is something that I take pride in. Um, It's a huge part of who I am. And it's love. Mm -hmm. So it's the understanding that my purpose and what I was placed on this earth to do before I leave is to make sure that individuals in some way understand they are loved, whether you have love in your life, whether someone is showing you love on the daily, or you're having to learn to love yourself. Because Mm -hmm. until you learn to love yourself, you truly can't love anyone else. So love, love first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The understanding that I must treat my neighbor the way I want to be treated. And it's the same as when we talked about community. My neighbor is anyone I come into contact with. Because we all live on this earth side by side, whether that be next door to each other, next state to each other, or across the globe, we <laughs> still share a common space. Um, also, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, they aren't just words. Like they, I know they're, they're like pop words now because everybody's hearing them and seeing them everywhere. But growing up in a small town in the South, as a young Black girl, they were things that I was seeking on a daily basis and didn't even know it. 
if I had an issue, I was hoping there was justice that would be added at the end of that issue. Um, equity in terms of when I show up to a space or when I'm seeking to excel and to accomplish, whether it be in the classroom, within the home, or even as I sought to climb ladders that I didn't even know existed, I was hoping for equity in that I would have the chance that everyone else had. So not the same chance, but had a fair chance. So in hopes that I would have access to the resources, because it's not just enough to have those resources, as we've stated this whole podcast, if I don't have access to the resources, you check the box that you provided them, but it was unfair to me because you provided resources I still couldn't get to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So equity is a definite Inclusion, because I don't want to just be tolerated in any space. I I hope that you respect, you value, um, and that my voice is wanted. And not just my voice, but of course, me as a person. And I take that same viewpoint everywhere I am. Everyone, none of my clients are tolerated. They all have different stories and even depending on the work I'm doing at that given time, I could be working with the community or working with the individual. It doesn't matter. Inclusion is taken with me because no one is tolerated. It's not a, I'm here for the money or I'm here to check this box to say that it's done. It's mm-hmm. inclusion from the perspective of, I respect this space that I am honored to hold and I value the people that come into this space. And it, it, it kind of goes back to that gatekeeping piece I was talking about. And a lot of my spaces, I can't control who comes into them, but I can't control the outlook or the mindset that I have towards them. And sometimes that does require having a mirror and checking myself on, okay, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I creating justice here or do I need to refer? Mm-hmm. Do I need to bring in another colleague and say, hey, So ethically, maybe I can't refer based off of what I'm feeling, but how can I check myself, you know, as these feelings arise? Am I being triggered or is this truly a lack of education and complete, you know, just ignorance on my part? And if so, I need to go get the knowledge. I need to check in with someone who understands so that that ignorance doesn't create bias or that ignorance does not create hate in this space where I'm supposed to be creating love, comfort, understanding, and empathy. Mm -hmm. And you just so beautifully answered what my next question was going to be. And that was, what's a tool that you think folks need to engage or a tool that you can offer a practical suggestion? And I'm hearing that mirroring. So Mm -hmm. reaching out to someone else to mirror back to you what you are saying or, you know, helping you check those biases helping you to understand um, the limitations. I'm hearing that as just a a very practical practice (laughs) that people can begin to engage in as they're doing the work that they're doing. That's how I found you. I was literally on Instagram looking for resources and books to read. And the very first post I saw by you was your reading list. And I was like, oh, let me write this down. And I think it's the first conversation I had with you in the DM too, because one of the books you were reading was Medical Apartheid. And I remember saying, I read that book. And it's one of the books I read in my public health program. And you responded. And I was like, okay, let me make sure I follow and actually keep up with what's happening. I love that. Hey, I am 
I have this stack of books I posted about the other day, but like the unread stack, you know, the red stack. And then the, cause I can't like so many people writing amazing books right now. It's incredible, but mm-hmm. um, I'm always going to post about books and geek out on anyone who wants to talk about it. So is there anything yes. you're reading right now? Or what was the last thing that you read that you really love? The last thing I read was grandmother, my grandmother's hands. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a book club for work. The last leisure piece of reading and I'm not done reading. Um, one is Pregnancy Bombshell, and then the mm. other is um, Birth Partner. Nice, nice. I haven't heard of Pregnancy Bombshell, but I've read it. I've heard of the other two. I need to check that out. I'm gonna have to. It's, I'm like, can I reach my bookshelf? <laughs> <laughs> you will send me. You will send me the yes. The um, it's definitely talking about pregnancy at the loss. So. Um, working through those emotions. Um, and it, it was a reading for my pregnancy and infant um, loss advocacy group. Because mm-hmm. um, that is a certification that I'm working on at the moment. And like I said, it just, it leads back to those communities. As you do work with communities and you learn the different stories of the communities, my heart always goes to how do I amplify the voice at this very moment that is the voice that everyone seems to hear, but they're still choosing to act on other voices. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, coming into maternal child health, there's this huge like focus on babies. That's mm-hmm. important. But then that led me to focusing on moms because they're the ones who give birth to the babies that we all want to hold and snuggle. But what's happening with moms? And then finding out, literally the rate at which black women are dying to give birth to these babies that we want to snuggle and cuddle till they get to a certain age. And that's a whole nother story. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that then took me to what is the support system and what does it look like where mom came from to get to this point? So looking at weathering and epigenetics, which I wanted to say so many times on this podcast and was like, mm, that no, can be you can't. Are you kidding? Yeah, so True story. No, true story. Before I, I switched my research and work focus to birth ethics, I wrote my dissertation on gen- ethics of genetics. So you mm. can go there with me. <laughs> I, gotcha. I, don't know if, I don't know if the listener's going to like be as excited to go there um, as we might be, but um, that might be for maybe we'll do a part two and we can get yeah. more epigenetics. I would genetics. love that. But, yeah, that's because when know. we talk about intergen- intergenerational healing and just generational healing. Yeah. We're talking about those things that we see on the outside, but what are those things on the inside that our literal DNA is needing to correct and we're birthing it into the next generation? Yes, that is that what you said there is what drives my work, like completely drives my work. I was with a group yesterday, a group. It was a mixed clinician group, primarily physicians, some obstetricians and um we were talking about, I brought up the stats around maternal mortality in the black and indigenous communities. And we all, you know, everyone cites that study. I think it was 2015 um, that, um, you know, set, you know, tells us that black women and indigenous women are three to four times more likely to have complications and die as a result of their, you know, you know, um, prenatal birth and postpartum experience. Right. And, um, 
immediately I had folks start, and I was trying to tie in the epigenetics piece and talking about intergenerational trauma and how Mm -hmm. that impacts and, and is, um, reflected in the birth experience. And I had these people challenging me. Right. And it, and so again, this is probably a whole other conversation, but I'm like, this is well-documented stuff. Now we have, I know you all love your medical journals. So go (laughs) check out this one, this one, and this one, because we have the full on, you know, the, the scientific studies that are there that are showing some of this is very new and emerging, but there's very established work being done around these things now. And we can no longer talk about shame. You know, a lot of clinicians will go straight and folks in general will go straight to blaming and shaming Mm -hmm. um, women who have, and people who have died or experienced complications as well. That's something about your health or that's something you're doing to your own body. Well, no, no, no. Now studies are showing that when we look at other countries with similar rates as we have around diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart, all the things that they like to point to their maternal mortality rates for these groups and others are, are way lower than ours. So there mm-hmm. is something else going on, right? Yes. And let's call it what it is. It's not provider bias. It's medical racism. Huge, yep. huge piece of that puzzle. Right. And, and so I'm talking to this group and trying to get into the epigenetics piece and, and how, you know, trauma is passed from generation to generation on even that biological level that you mentioned. It's, it it can be, we can see changes in the DNA. Um, I had a lot of skeptics, I'll put it that way and and defensiveness around that conversation. So I'm highlighting that to say, yes, we could do a whole other podcast to really get into it. And I'd love to actually, I would love to have you back and do that. I say yes. We're doing doing that. Um, so and, and those who want to geek out with us, come with us because I, I make a joke like let's geek out, but this is life-saving work. This is yes. this is essential, crucial. There's an urgency behind this that I don't mm-hmm. think all the right folks, all the people that are in a position to create change really appreciate. And I don't that know understanding. What, yeah, is, and there's more public needed. consciousness around these issues now, clearly more mm-hmm. than ever. But we, it's an emergency situation and let's start treating it that way. Right. And I think too, to even round out the question about what guys, my work. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely could have have said a a lot more, but I will say honesty, integrity, Mm -hmm. being a lifelong learner, even as a black woman, there are things I have to unlearn and learn. There are biases that I was taught growing up and it wasn't biased Sometimes it was bias based on survival. Bias was given so that I wouldn't be naive about certain things and unknowingly walk, as you stated before, into the lion's den. Mm. I was raised to question first, trust second. Mm. So unlearning it in terms of fear and relearning it in terms of guiding the work that I do so that those questions are asked so that I don't fall into bias. Mm -hmm. Those questions are asked so that I can not only trust, but gain trust. And so that those questions are also asked so that I don't lead someone else into what could be harm's way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what guides my work, I wouldn't say would ever be a theory or it would be this, I don't know, social construct of like 
thinking or some uh, model of thinking. Like I work in those fields, yes, but the what guides my work is who I am as a person. And in understanding that, it goes back to what the basis of this podcast is. As a birth worker, I have to always make sure I am doing the work first. I am encouraging, supporting, and uplifting and working with communities that are doing their own work so that together we are creating change. Because if we aren't first doing our own work, we're blindly just creating a bigger problem. Amen to that. Amen to that. So tell us how we can amplify your work and where we can best connect with you. So right now I would definitely say Instagram. Um, You can find me at Positively Meek, um, P-O-S-I-T-I-V-E-L-Y-M-Y-E-E-K. It's a lot of, uh, and we talked about this too, it's a lot of flashy reels on there right now and really great pictures. You know, Instagram is maybe You are killing the real game. (laughs) Thank you. Serious inspiration because I I struggled a little bit, but yeah. Trust me that it's it's the glamour to get the aesthetics for you to look, but it's the message that's important. So beyond those reels, beyond the fancy pictures, the message is what I hope people walk away with. And the messages are messages that we've talked about within this podcast, things that not only bring me passion, but things that truly hurt me, Um, things that I still find frustrating that I'm having to work through because I know if I'm working through it, other people are working through it Mm. or even talking more about how I do work for myself and understanding that even beyond the fight I have within and for my own community, there are other communities that also need their voices amplified and that tug of war in how do I hold up my community while also pulling these other communities who I don't know their exact life experience, but I know we share pain. Mm -hmm. So check me out on IG. If you hit me up in the DMs, I definitely respond. And IG is definitely the place where announcements will be dropping about all things coming to Positively Me. Perfect. I know everyone will be heading there and uplifting your work, amplifying your work and following and checking out your amazing reels with an underlying, very significant, poignant message all of the yes. time, consistently. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Shamika. I have loved this conversation and you are, I'm, you are t- completely coming back for a part two where we, I love get it. In, where we get into all the other things. I so enjoyed this. Thank you for being with us. Thank and you I'll for reaching out. Time. I was so fangirling. I was like, yes. Oh my God, are you kidding? Other way around. Other way around. Thank you, Shamika. Thank you. I hope you all have a great day.